Losing Myself, a special podcast series celebrating 50 years of great composers at Wise Music. Presented by Jill Graham and Dave Holly. Welcome to Composing Myself. This week, Dave and I are joined by Rufus Wainwright, one of the world's most complete musicians, singer, songwriter, opera composer, and collaborator across many genres. Welcome, Rufus. Where are we hearing from you today? I'm in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Fantastic. On tour. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, we, we, Rufus, we traditionally start these chats by asking... Um, can you remember um, the first piece of music that you heard growing up that made you go, wow, what was that? I think it would be probably, uh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick two because they're, they're kind of interesting. One is, is, uh, is, is fairly well known. It's, um, it's uh, it, it was Peter Gabriel uh, singing... Um, what is it? Games without frontiers. Games without frontiers. Yeah, that 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 song really got. Yeah, that that got me at an early age. Um, so that was more, you know, in the pop genre. But then at one point, um, my mother, Kate McGarrigle, became obsessed with this overture uh, by Franz Schmidt. Oh my god! <laughs> called uh, from the, an opera he wrote called Notre Dame. And it's this, and it's, and I think it's the only famous thing from the opera. Um, but it's this, it's a, this amazing uh, kind of string, you know, uh, turn of the century of the last century's uh, Viennese string thing that starts with the with the fifth, um, da 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 da, and, and it goes on to you know, it's incredibly dramatic and florid and very very beautiful, and uh, and she used to like play it at four in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> after probably a few drinks and um and i'd be you know i was you know maybe four or five you know up in bed and i'd be awoken by this you know distant string orchestra playing playing uh the notre dame theme so so yeah franz schmidt's uh, notre dame um uh, overture interlude can i just ask a might be a, a stupid question but you know you come from an incredibly musical family and i remember yeah. when i i was growing up in a not very musical family um yeah. but it was very important for me growing up to have my music as opposed yeah. to their music did, did, did yeah. you have that kind of feeling <sighs> did i have that feeling um it wasn't that important for me. Uh, I think it was more important for my sister, Martha. Uh, she, you know, my mother and I had an immediate affinity and we completely, you know, worshipped each other for, uh, for kind of from the get-go. So, so I wanted to hear what she was playing and she wanted, was interested in, in what I was doing. But, uh, but my sister, I think, had to carve out her own little um, niche. So she would be up in her room listening to, you know, Leonard Cohen or, you know... Um, so, uh, who she liked, Leonard Cohen. She loved uh, Patti Smith and people like that. She was more, you know, dar darker in that sense. So, so, but my mother and I would be, you know, downstairs uh, listening to Glenn Gould. I mean, yeah, we were a pretty <laughs> <laughs> odd family. That's so cool. You went on to study music, didn't you? You had a brief yes. um, interlude at yeah, McGill, yeah. didn't you? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, well, I, I, said, I mean, I, I have an interesting education because, I mean, on one hand, I, I, I was never a great student, uh, not so much because I didn't, uh, I didn't have the ability. It was more, I just, I didn't really apply myself. Um, mm. but I did study, uh, piano for, you know, 20 years, um, almost. And, uh, cause I started pretty young and then, um, and then, and I, my first piano teacher, I had a couple of great first piano teachers, but one of my piano teachers was this amazing woman uh, when I went to high school, um, at boarding school in upstate New York, and she was this woman named Denise Restou, and she was the um, kind of lover, assistant, uh, uh, kind of companion of Wanda Landowska. <laughs> 
who was uh, the first, you know, who brought back the harpsichord yeah. or whatever. You oh know, uh, yeah. And so you would go in to, to and, I mean, Wanda died a long time ago, but, but, but it was in their old house and there was lots of pictures of Wanda and this incredible, it looked like the house from The Shining. <laughs> not The Shining, sorry. Not The Shining, sorry. Psycho. Psycho. <laughs> that had, that kind of Vic- <laughs> yeah, it was like this, this, this Victorian uh, dilapidated house in Connecticut and you go in and there would be pictures on the wall of Wanda with all these people. And there was especially this one guy with a big beard. And, uh, and I asked her one day, I was like, who's that guy in the picture? And she, she went, Oh, it's Tolstoy, you know? <laughs> you know? Wow. So it was like, so, so that was that. And then, and then I studied with someone in Montreal, uh, for a while who was actually, who had actually studied with Nadia Boulanger. So I kind of, you know, got into that whatever department I, you know, but then finally, yes, I did go to McGill for about a year, about a year, uh, and a, and a bit. And, uh, and I, you know, I had, I had, a, a, I didn't, I, I didn't take to it, shall we say, mm-hmm. uh, but, I, but it was an important, it was a very important, um, thing because my, the first piece of music that really got me into opera that really, you know, thrust me forth and, 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 and changed my life actually was Verdi's Requiem. Mm-hmm. Um, that I heard when I was about 13 or 14. And then when I went to McGill, I was in the choir and we got to sing Verdi's Requiem. So I got to be in a performance of it. And that I considered to be sort of the, uh, you know, the, the, the bookends of, of that whole situation. Okay. So when did you hear the Verdi Requiem? Was that on an album or was it? In yeah. Writing? Yeah. No, I mean, my mother and aunt, um, Kate Nana, they, they appreciated opera they didn't know it very well necessarily. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I wouldn't say that they even were gravitated towards it initially, but they loved tenors um, as, as people did, did and even when, when, when I was young, I mean, people like Pavarotti or, you know, Domingo, I mean, they were big stars. Mm-hmm. So they loved tenors. And, uh, and so they essentially uh, would, uh, but, but their favorite tenor was UC Burling. Uh, they were big UC Berlin fans. And so one day they brought home a recording of uh, Verdi's Requiem and it was with UC Berlin and, um, and Leontine Price. Oh, wow. And uh, I think it's a famous, uh, it's, a, it's a famous one from mm. Vienna. And, uh, and, and we listened to it from beginning to end, you know, uh, and by the end of that, whatever, two hour period, I was compl- I was a completely different person. I, I like it was I was about as I said I was about thirteen, and and um and like the next day I just went on this journey of this operatic journey that uh, has not ceased. <laughs> well, quite thank God for that. What, 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 what was it that appealed? Do you think what appealed? Um, well, I I I I I feel that it's there's there's a there's a real myriad of issues. Uh, uh, or, or threads um, that um, that intersected at that point. I mean, the, for one, you know, I wasn't. Um, I was, you know, I was thirteen, and I was also very much aware of my sexuality. I knew, I knew I was gay, and at that point, I was, you know, it was like 87, 88, 86. Um, it was, you know, the, the, uh, during the most horrific time <laughs> to yeah. be a gay man. So I, I definitely had a sense that, you know you know, death was near. So, so, so I was, you know, dealing with those forces, you know, fundamentally. And, um, and so I related to the, to the, to the death mass itself. Um, and then I also, and then of course, you know, this is the ideas of redemption, the idea of, you know, transcendence and, and, you know, forgiveness and all of that. So I just, I, it, for me, I think it, it has a lot to do with AIDS. I think also, um, it was so different from what my, my upbringing was in the in in terms of uh, music with with folk music, which was so which was really wonderful, but also quite linear and 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 very you know I wouldn't say reserved, but you know or it has some sort of you know order to it. A lot of drama and folk music too, but it t- mm-hmm. but, but but and just those chords, you know, the chord changes you just don't run into those um, so much in in, in folk music. Uh, and then you know to be to be and this I only realized a lot later that I actually started to relate a lot to Verdi in general after that, because I went and you know, got all his operas and stuff. And especially him, for some reason, I started to think of him as my dad. <laughs> <laughs> like there was something like the Papa Verdi thing happened to me, which is not uncommon, you know, for, for people lovers of his music, especially 
singers where there's some sort of paternal uh, energy that, that he gives off. And I think I, I, I was in need of that also because my dad was away a lot. So, so, so I kind of, I just sort of imagined that he was my father, which on reading his biography, I'm, you know, I'm happy he wasn't. Really? <laughs> but musically he was. That's strange. Cause I, I had a strange thing about Jack Kerouac when I was about 15 or 16. And again, he would have been about my dad's age and, yeah. and having gone back and read Jack Kerouac last year on the road, Thank God he wasn't my father. I think there was something about Verdi that was so kind of, I mean, my dad, if, I mean, for those of you who know my dad's music, Loud and Wayne, I mean, it's, 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 he's fantastic and he, and he writes very beautiful songs. He also writes very funny songs, but he has this kind of dry wit and there's, and there's something very, um, how can I say it? Very, what is the word? It's very, kind of transparent in a way, you know, what he writes. Um, but there's this, this solid, dark, you know, commanding thing that Verity has that, uh, that I was able to kind of latch on to, you know, which I think was very different from my dad. Were, were, were you always going to have a career in music? Yeah, yeah, no, there was no question. Uh, really from the earliest days of my childhood. Uh, I mean, my, my, uh, my first, uh, I was, when, after I was born, my, my dad was in the studio or while I was born, my dad was in the studio and, uh, working in the studio and, and they took me. So I had to go to the studio first <laughs> before going home <laughs> and they didn't have it. They didn't have a, a crib for me. So they put me in a guitar case. <laughs> so that was my first crib. And, That's uh, hilarious. So, uh, so it's, and it really started from there. Cause I just, I don't know. I was just always singing and stuff. My mother claims that I would even like, she would sing when I was six months old, which I don't think is true now that I've had a child. I mean, I don't think it's possible, but, um, but then again, there are things that babies do, which, which are astounding, which, uh, so maybe it is, but, uh, but I was, uh, she would sing old MacDonald had a farm and I would answer E I E I O, but then she would go, Old MacDonald had a farm, and I go e i e i o. I'd like modulate <laughs> the, uh, you know, in whatever key she gave me. So that's she claimed that you're very well known for your impressive and continuously growing catalog as a singing yeah. singer songwriter. And you know, I can confess you've been part of my musical life for as long as I can remember. Yeah. And then in 2008, you you know you wrote your first opera, Prima yes. Donna. How did yeah. that come about? Yeah, yeah, no, that is a an epic tale. Which uh, at some point I'd love to sit down and really write the whole story because it's kind of fabulous uh, and and also uh, somewhat not, um, frightening. Because um, I, uh, you know, I'd always loved opera and, and I and I and I had the intention of in the back of my mind of maybe writing one at some point, um, but then somehow I guess the idea sprung started to really great on me. Like I have to write this opera mainly because I didn't want to end up doing it when I was older. <laughs> like I wanted to kind of get it over with and not be this sort of thorn in my side. Um, so, so I wanted to write an opera and actually the first story that I thought of was Hadrian. Yeah. Um, Cause I'd read the, the memoirs of Hadrian um, by your sonar. And, uh, but I knew that I didn't necessarily have the, the chops mm. to, uh, capture the Roman empire at that point <laughs> in my compositional, uh, working. So I, so I kind of waited and waited and waited. And then one day I was watching this wonderful, um, interview, uh, with uh, Maria Callas and Lord Harwood. Um, and, uh, and in the middle of the interview, uh, Maria Callas said, and it was, you know, it just looks so fabulous too. Cause she's sort of, a, she's, I don't, I think she, I don't think her voice was great at that point, but she had, she certainly had the look, and in her Paris apartment and stuff. And at one point she said, and that is what it is to be the prima donna and the, the first woman. Says. And, uh, and, and at that point, the whole opera landed on my lap. I was just like, oh, that's yeah. it. A day in the life of an opera singer. Not Maria Callas specifically, but, but just a singer who's deciding whether to sing or not. And there was an opera that was written for her. Then there's an album, you know, like it's just the whole, and there's a butler and a maid. And just, it became, it was just this very concise kind of, quartet actually um 
that, uh, that, that I, that I knew had to be the first piece. So, so I did that. And then a week later, literally a week later, Peter Gelb had just been given the, the, uh, the job at the Met. I got a call out of the blue from Peter Gelb, who I didn't know from Adam. Um, and he, but he'd heard that I had liked opera and he said, I'm, I'm, uh, this is Peter Gelb. I'm at the Met. And, uh, I'm just curious if you're, I heard you're interested in opera. Maybe you, maybe you'd like to, I don't know, help us over here at the Met somehow. And I said, well, in fact, I actually have an opera that I'd like to write. And I walked right up to the office and, and he, and he agreed. <laughs> so a week later it was commissioned for the Met <laughs> after yeah. I had the idea. Um, now things went many different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where the saga begins. Cause, cause I mean, look, it, it's a piece that I'm still very, very fond of and, and it is performed still. Um, in fact, they're going to be doing it again in Sweden. Uh, and uh, so, so I actually think that that opera will, well, well, ha- has a life, and 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 is quite important in certain ways. But um, but it did have to suffer the slings and arrows of, of of the classical world, which initially I was not prepared for. Um, you know, I really thought I had this kind of dreamy. It ended up, you know, being premiered in Manchester at the Manchester Festival. You know, my mother, who was very sick at the time, uh, ended up seeing it, uh, which was great. She died not too long afterwards. If it had been at the Met, she wouldn't have seen it. That to me was the sort of big, Amazing. kind of cosmic reason. Um, and there's all these other weird things. I ended up hanging out with Lord Harwood a lot somehow, um, and it actually ended up getting produced at the Lord Harwood Theater in uh, in Leeds. So, which is it, when you think of like the that cosmic situation of it came from that interview, and then it was produced in his theater. That's pretty strange. Yeah. Um, so so. So anyway, so, so, so yeah, but then once the, the opera premiered, I was just, I was so ready for everybody to love it and think it was great. And I just, it was, it was totally attacked by many people. Some people really fought for it as well, but it became this kind of lightning rod. Um, and, uh, and I was, I wouldn't say I was devastated, but I was definitely, uh, affected and and in and in the end i was actually uh strengthened i think by the whole experience i mean i really i got i earned my stripes as they say and uh and uh yeah and then i wrote a second one but the but the prima donna story is is mm. is, the, is kind of a fascinating one because then it ended up being promote produced again and again yep. they did it in hungary they did it in germany and then they ended up doing it they ended up doing it in sweden at the royal opera house in the middle of covid yeah. So the, theoretically, it was one of the only operas produced on Earth <laughs> at one point. You know, precisely. They didn't lock down in Sweden, did they? Yeah, they didn't they lock down in freedom. Sweden. So they did it during COVID. They did yeah. it. Yeah. So 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 it has a it has it's certainly a, a tough kid to check that opera. Yeah, and also the fact that you were very happy to reduce the orchestra in order yes. to provide for sort of COVID restrictions yes, yes, within yes. The, and managed to do that quickly. Yeah. And I think, you know, talking about the sort of criticism that comes to composers who write, I suppose, grand opera in the 20th century, which is what you do, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you get criticised for it, but the audiences adore it. And the singers, you you know, you work with a range yeah. of absolutely top drawer singers yeah, who are yeah. not singing the more avant garde, yeah, yeah, because you yeah. know how to write for the voice. Yeah, and the, and the other thing is, and, and the other thing that I think is more subtle, which is which is which is I feel lost on the critics um, because they don't really have that in their ear, is that there is a difference between someone who writes something that's kind of like a knockoff of Puccini or Strauss and what I'm doing. Um, I mean, I mean, and, and it's very subtle. I'm obviously affected by those compute composers and, uh, and I'm borrowing from them and I'm influenced by them, but I'm interpreting their music in in a way that is actually very current. Um, um, but, they, but, but it's hard for them to hear that because they don't, because, because cr- critics don't have, they're so tuned literally their ears to hear this, whatever, this sort of um, breakaway mm. situation or this something that's, you know, legitimately, you know, played in the 
perfect style of that era. You know, it's so it's like departmentalized. So when you yeah. have something that's not doing what it's supposed to, i.e., you're 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 composing something that's that's unabashedly influenced by the Romantic era, but it's interpreted in another way. Um, but it's having its own spin on it. They don't necessarily hear that. No. You know, um, and that's why they're critics. Yeah. <laughs> and not composers. <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely, because when I first heard Prima Donna, um, very modern, you know? Yeah, yeah, it yeah, is yeah. today's opera. And it's and little just, things like timing and little things like... Um, like, like not, you know, I, I do remember composing it and, and also with Hadrian where you're like, no, that sounds so naff <laughs> if you do it this way. But if you just change it this slightly way, it actually kind of works, but, but takes into account, you know, the, the past and, 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 and so forth. It makes sense in that context. So, so it'll, it'll all come out in the wash. As they it say. worked. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you have a particular way of like a routine that you use when you're, you're creating your classical work? Um, like a time of day. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, look, I, 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 me composing my classical work is, um, I have to say it, it is my happiest place in the sense that I mean, like, I love performing. I love writing songs. I love being with my daughter and so forth. But, but, um, but in no, nowhere in my life am I more kind of taken out of myself than when I'm composing classical music and, and um you know and because i really get into all the all the the um the minutia of it you know of, of the orchestration you know the what the french horns are playing with the clarinets you know all the lines are very very important to me so and 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 subsequently i totally lose myself and we'll just have like this whole day of like wow what what an amazing planet i live on you know <laughs> and uh and uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's a big part of my life. I mean, I, and the other thing is that it's, I mean, it has a lot to do with my personal life in the sense that I, I, I definitely transfer a lot of my own emotions into the music. And in fact, when I wrote Prima Donna, my mother was very sick with cancer and dying. And, and I, when I first saw the run through of it, I, I got very emotional because I realized a lot of that sadness and pain was was in the music and and it, and it was stuff that I couldn't really deal with uh, conceptually and so I just deal, dealt with it in the in the in the work and then uh, but it was sort of it wasn't like deliberate like I wasn't purposely not it was just so such deep pain that I just you know had to just like shift it over and um, and I feel this that happens a lot with classical music because it's yeah so it's 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 the way I can deal with that sort of very very deep pain which as opposed to, you know, songwriting or making records where, you know, you're dealing with what's on the surface, your, you know, your feelings about people in your life or the world, or you're kind of, you're, you're upfront about um, your emotions. And that's, that's, that, that's great too. But, but, uh, but you're not dealing with the deep stuff. <laughs> and do you have a routine for, for writing or do you? Uh, yeah. I mean, I write every day, you know, I get up in the morning and, um, if I'm at home, I, I play piano in the morning and then, and I, and I, and I also, I, another thing I do a lot is that I, I, I sing into my phone, you know, and, and I might, I have like a whole series of voice recorders, recordings. Um, that's very important. And then sitting backstage, I'll, I'll often play. And uh, yeah, so, so I, I do think that if you're a musician in general, you should play music pretty much every day. No, you don't have to play all the time. You know, you don't have to play for hours, uh, but, but it's something you should really touch on every day. Um, and keep, it's like a thread that you need to keep um, kind of alive. And I think what's fascinating for me is your ability to orchestrate every single note of what you produce. Yes. And yes. <laughs> you're, 
you know, working with uh, assistants to get all yeah. that out, but yeah. you're responsible yeah. for yes. every single yeah. note. Yes. That goes yeah, yeah. I like to, I like to say this certainly before the advent of Sibelius and like computers and, and, and stuff like that, I wouldn't have really been able to do what I do today. Mm-hmm. Um, that is one example where technology has helped me a lot because I can, you know, with, with the sort of high fidelity of sound and, 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 and so forth, I can hear what I'm in real time, sort of what mm-hmm. I'm going at. I'm not, and, and not even like with amazing sounds all the time, just to really put those amazing sounds in that takes too much time. But I can get, I can really approximate what I what I need, and 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 of course I, I I know nothing about computers at all. I'm really bad at technology, but um, but with um, but with my uh, the wonderful assistance I've had over the years, um, I've uh, been able to you know whatever translate this passion and this mm-hmm. sort of. You know, and it is, and and a lot of the assistants are quite shocked <laughs> when they get it when they get into the room with me because they're like, okay, well, just give me a melody and I'll work on it and I'll see. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm like, I'll be here. And it's like every single note. Yeah. Um, and they become and 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 they 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 appreciate. It. And there are moments I will admit where I'm like, do you think that this, like you having completed music school, like what would be the best way to really, you know voice this chord or can this instrument really do this you know and and then and then i take their advice it's it's more similar to i would say the um the way like let's say i mean i'm not calling myself a master or anything but like let's say a master painter would be in their studio where they have you know where they have a lot of assistants um and that's like an an, 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 a you know an ancient tradition so i'm more in that tradition uh with with in terms of composing than than the alone with my quill and my candelabra. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah, I think also, I mean, moving on to your next opera, Hadrian, um, yes. and you talking about knowing that you were gay from a very young age and yes. being out at a time when, you know, it wasn't necessarily as acceptable as it oh. is now. Did that openness ever affect how the industry treated you? Um, well, um, you know... Definitely, you know, with that opera, there are there are there are a whole group of singers. I mean, I, I wouldn't name them or anything, but but who won't sing the role because it's because mm-hmm. it's uh, the, it's a gay character. Um, I will say that, uh, but then again, I don't know. There's like we we did work with Thomas Hampson. You know, he's he premiered the the role, and he was like, so excited to inhabit that mm. territory and and really. Uh, quite lustfully, <laughs> you know, know took right? it on. <laughs> so, so there's, a, so it's, so yeah, it, it kind of balances out. I mean, the gay thing right now. Look, yeah, I, and actually, now that you mention it, I mean, it's 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 gotten so bad over the last, really, over the last year mm. in America with this sort of rise on the right of of these, you know, anti-trans laws and these, you know, gay people are once again or LGBTQ. Plus, people are really are, are true targets again in the United States yeah. um, at the moment. So, so yeah, it's it's uh, the battle is on again, and um, and yeah, and I'm just I think I mean I, I'm even just starting to come to terms with that right now. Um, um, yeah. So, so I don't know about in the UK, but in the US, it's gotten really bad in the last few months. <laughs> yeah, not so bad, but certainly the the trans debate is revving right up, you know. Yeah, and yeah, there is yeah. a lot of there's a lot of white noise around something that is actually quite not straightforward for the individuals, yeah. but it's perfectly unacceptable sense yeah, of being, yeah. you know. Yeah. But it's getting yeah. a bit out of hand. And then when you look at Hadrian, you know, I didn't know that the Emperor Hadrian had this homosexual relationship with this young guy, Antinous. And I think that's the first time I've seen a gay relationship represented on the opera stage. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, it's happened now. I mean, there's things with, you know, there was, I guess, Brokeback Mountain was Mm. was made into an opera. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. and and, I mean, it's it's, it's not not the first time. But what, what I loved about Hadrian... And this and this pertains to my own um, kind of philosophy is that is that 
it's done within the context of, of, of grand opera, meaning that the characters are, you know, grand. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we have an emperor and we have a, a cat knight. <laughs> and, you know, and, and so, so, so whereas, you know, a lot of gay people and historically would go to the opera and they go see Tristan and Isolde or they would go see, you know, Don Carlo or whatever, um, these kind of larger than life people on stage, they never saw gay people like that. Yeah. Uh, the gay character was always sort of like some strange, you know, hunched over, <laughs> you know, Persecuted dwarf or person. something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? So here we are, they're the main roles and they are, and they are fully equipped with all of the um, trappings of, of, of those grand opera characters. You know, yeah. they have arias and duets and they have great costumes and, and they have this, you know, sweeping romantic um, uh, situation. And it's funny because, I mean, it, it's it's hinted at, obviously, in Grand Opera when you have, you know, Rose and Cavalier, for instance, mm. where you do have these two women singing to each other, which is so, you know, in one of the most beautiful music musical duets of, of all time, yeah. you know, and, and, and so it's, 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 it's sort of hinted at, but here it's unabashedly happening, which is, uh, which is, which is, I think more in context with, with the history of opera, you know, I mean, and that's, that's very important to me to be within that story, not to try to break away from it or destroy. I'm not an iconoclast. Mm, absolutely. You know? And I yeah. think you know, I remember the premiere in Toronto of Hadrian and there were so many, gay couples who were kind of weeping at yeah, being yeah. able to relate to what was going on on stage. Yeah. I mean, it was sort of magical, really, yeah, and not yeah, something yeah. I was kind of re- prepared for, but I was surrounded by these sort of people who were really moved by the fact that f- there's a representation yeah, yeah, of yeah. that. Uh, and bravo. And <laughs> uh, newsflash... If anyone wants to perform Hadrian in either the one-hour version or the full opera, <laughs> get in touch with Chester Music. It's private yes, publisher. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. it is a great piece, and you know, and uh, we had a wonderful experience in Madrid where your husband Jorn, who is a hugely cultured person and yes. has a great keen eye for aesthetic, created this production of Hadrian. Do you yes. want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, yeah, because you're, I think yeah, that was incredible. Uh, yeah, my husband, Jorn Weisbrot, who um, we met, uh, well, over uh, about 20 years ago, um, uh, when he was working at the Staatsoper in Berlin. And so, so and he, he studied opera directing, and then he went on to work there. And then also he worked with Robert Wilson, the director, and, and, uh, and also had his own festival, a fantastic festival called Luminato in Toronto, and, uh, and, 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 and also worked... Um, at the music center in LA, bunches of places. Anyways, he, um, at one point we, yeah, he just had this idea of, 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 of sort of synthesizing, um, Hadrian with the works of Robert Maplethorpe, the photographer, um, and, uh, and doing sort of a semi-staged, uh, concert version of, of, of the opera where you kind of, you take what, I mean, one of the great things about the opera world that I love, um, is uh, is is the rehearsal process? That's mm. actually kind of where the most beautiful moments are in the rehearsal process. And there's and there's something so sacred about that. And you know, once you kind of thrust it out into the public, it's you, you do lose something actually. Um, so so the idea was that to, you know to set up the stage as if it's a rehearsal, and mm. people can wear you know their street clothes, the, the singers that is, and they can bring their scores and. And it's like, and they kind of run through, through the, uh, through some of the staging, but not most of it. And, uh, and then behind are these amazing images by mm. Maplethorpe as if they are kind of a mood board yeah. for, for a final production that, uh, that doesn't happen, but, but you're kind of in that in-between world watching them, you know, just run through the piece and, uh, and then also kind of become the keys occasionally. And it's, and it worked really, really well. Um, Pedro Amadovar came yeah. To the to the premiere, it was packed at, at the Teatro Real in Spain. It also went to the Paralada Festival, and it was you know it was a magical evening. And it, and it has a it will be performed again. Um, there there are other you know engagements. So so uh, so yeah, it was a really great way to put it forth. Because also I do think that there's a funny similarity between what I do personally 
and the art world in the sense that, um, you know, this thing of, in, in the art world of, of kind of referencing the past and, and taking, you know, things like, let's like Jeff Koons or, or Damien Hurst or whatever, mm. where they, you know, they take older aesthetics and they kind of toy with them and, and, you know, represent them and stuff. That, that's, that's quite established in the art world. It's, it's very, it's, there's nothing kind of crazy about that in the, in the classical music world that it's, it's, it's totally, it's totally new now. Like, mm, like yeah. they, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're still afraid of that kind of thing. So, so, so it's a nice way to kind of, you know, bring us up to date a bit here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you have got, you know, that cast for um, Adrian, you know, Tom Hampson, one of the great singers, Carita Matala. Yeah, no, she was amazing. Uh, Amber Braid. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And, uh, extraordinary, you know, testament to the fact that these great singers, that those subscription audiences want to hear yeah. will step yeah. out and hold your yeah. hand and deliver your work. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. No, I have I have a lot of allies, and and that is starting to pay off now, you know, and that's something that I worked on very hard uh, initially, um, and... and uh, and, and that, yes, and now I'm starting to see the fruits of those labors, which is nice. Can I just ask you about the um, wh- how you arrived at, at the story of Hadrian? Are you yeah. a history buff? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I love history. I, as I said, I, I initially read the, the Yorsenar book, yeah. the Margaret Yorsenar Memoirs of Hadrian, which I, is a wonderful book. I've read it a few times. Um, but then... Uh, I wanted to do the opera, and then I, I, I got in touch with... It took a while to get a, a librettist. Uh, we, I was maybe going to do it with Laurie Anderson, uh, and then this guy, Daniel McIver... Sorry, sorry Dan, Daniel Mendelssohn, who's a historian mm-hmm. um, and, and writer, and, uh, and, and all these people, but nothing was kind of happening. Um, there was a lot of discussions, but nothing really kind of materialized. But then um, we met... Uh, Alexander Neef, who's now the head of the Paris Opera, he, he, and he was head of Toronto at the time, he, he suggested this guy, Daniel McIver, a very well-known and respected uh, Canadian uh, playwright who lives in Toronto, and I was there as well. So, so we got together, and he just immediately came with dialogue. Uh, right. He's like, oh, I, I love this story. I love the story of Hadrian. He'd never read the book. He never read the huh? Orson Art book, but he loved, this, he loved the story of Hadrian. And he, just, he was just immediately... Um, uh, inspired and you just started writing dialogue and that's that to me was the key just to start with just give me some words and um, so we started and then and you know and then subsequently he refused to read the book <laughs> he, he's, he has, he's quite he has, he's a very uh, how could I say he has a lot of personality <laughs> he's, a, he's a lovely man he's a lovely man but he's also you know quite uh, he has his own you know he's quite temp he has quite a temper and um, and we just started hammering it out. And, um, and it was this classic, uh, you know, battle between the librettist and the composer, you know, and I wanted this and he wanted that. And at one point we, we brought in the great Corey Ellison, <gasps> the dramaturg. Sainted. Yes. Who had to come in and kind of referee us through the process a bit. And who was very instrumental in kind of completing the libretto and, and, and so forth with us. And, uh, and we ended up with what we have today, which, in the end of the day, I, I've learned that as well. If 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 there is if there is no kind of turmoil in the process, it's probably not a very good piece. <laughs> 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 you know, because there has to be if this fight, you know, between the forces is so I don't know, it really gives vitality to the to the music. I mean, I guess it can kill it too, but but it has if it's like something that's really easy and everybody's just, you know, patting each other on the back and it's like, oh, so fabulous and blah, 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 blah. It's probably incredibly dull. <laughs> uh, talking of turmoil, then, how do, you, do you, how do you choose people to collaborate with? Like, for, for example, I thought the new Fococracy record, there's some really, I wasn't expecting yeah. some of those people to be on a <laughs> yeah. album. Yeah, well, it's all, yeah. it's, all de- it's all destiny, you know. I mean, it, it, and, and I am a believer in that, actually strongly um so so you know we just started the album and we're in a, we were in la and who's around who do i know who's uh so so i i think a lot of it has to do with and i think this is actually a good lesson in terms of writing opera is that 
or anything, uh, but especially opera because it's so crazy and grandiose is that it's just, you know, it's going to ha- you have to just believe that it'll happen a hundred percent and have, I, and I have no doubt in, in it whatsoever. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, and then it'll materialize and, uh, it's kind of like build Rome and, and they shall come or whatever, what that, whatever that saying is. And, um, a bit like, uh, young people, particularly in friends of my kids talk about manifesting, yeah, yeah, something manifest, into being yeah, manifest. Yeah, yes, yeah. It's also very. I have to say, it's very. You know, I don't know. Well, I have an interesting perspective because you know I was brought up in Canada, yeah. which is of course part of the uh, the empire, <laughs> uh, and uh, and so we had a little bit more of that British or yeah British British sensibility, uh, but we were also you know next to the United States, so it's sort of like a mix of both. And there is something definitely more in the United States, which they had, of course, manifest destiny, where, you know, you really have this go-getter attitude and it's going to happen and so forth. So, so I think it's more innate in, in the U.S. to have that. It's not as, it's not as um, unlike in England, where you're, you're more taught to be, you know. Um, embarrassed. <laughs> embarrassed about stuff like that. But, but it's still, but, but there's good things to both, because I do feel in a strange way there's, one of the, it was so funny because I was watching, I was walking down the street the other day and they did have this like commercial. I was walking in the airport and they had this, this, this poster and it was a picture of, of, uh, of Lincoln, President Lincoln. And it said like, failed, 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 and then succeeded, you know, oh, keep, keep, keep trying. And my thing is should be like, failed, 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 decided to stop and do something else. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like that yeah. to me is the lesson, you know, like, yeah. no, you're not going to become Lincoln, President Lincoln, you know, and there is this mad kind of American thing where certain people really believe that they're going to like become president. <laughs> and sadly, they do. But, but, uh, you know, so it's, so it's, so I think the English thing of maybe just taking a step back can also be helpful. And, uh, you know, <laughs> This very time last year, we were at Glastonbury. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. I know. Can you believe that? Yeah, that was yeah, like that. young. So, and yeah. we walked about 13 miles. But anyway, that's for another time. Um, you've got two big things coming up. Uh, you're writing your next classical piece. Yes. Tell yes. us about Dream yeah. Requiem. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, it's quite the epic. Yeah, I'm, I'm writing a Requiem, you know, and it's very much... Um, in in honor of, of that first experience that I had when I was thirteen with with Verdi's Requiem and um, and it's uh, it's been commissioned by the L'Orchestre Radio France and also by the LA Master Chorale and also by the the um, some other people a lot of people actually so it's uh, it's uh, you know it's it's for full orchestra and a, and a full chorus and one soprano so there's only one soloist. Um, and I, what can I say? I'm, I'm, you know, reveling in the whole process. Uh, uh, I'm a little surprised and shocked at how easily the music is coming out. <laughs> I mean, I, and part, and when I say that, it's only because it's a little spooky because, you know, I, I was brought up in Montreal, but I was, Montreal, which as well as being, you know, Part of the the Commonwealth is also is also has a, an incredibly strong Catholic history. Mm. Quebec, especially, uh, it was one of the most Catholic places on earth for a long time. Um, and I was brought I was brought up. I was never baptized actually, but I did go to Catholic school, and uh, it was just oh, it was just always around my childhood. And so, and, and you know, my mom, my mother was kind of traumatized by nuns uh, in the fifties and stuff. So it was like it's always there. And, um, and I'm just shocked at how the stuff, just the music is coming out in relation to the text, you know, in relation to the, to the Requiem text and, and how, and how, um, I'm just, I really feel like more of a conduit <laughs> in this, wow. uh, in this, uh, process. And I've even, you know, I've even thought about getting baptized a couple of times, not because I believe necessarily, but it's like, well, if I'm going to write a Requiem, I might as well just go the whole way. Um, because you're dealing, you know, you're dealing with the spiritual uh, elements, you know, you know, you can't, you can't just kind of toss it off, you know, it's, yeah. it's really, 
you know, and, and these are th- words that have been around for, for thousands of years. So it's sort of, and there's, they're stronger than you, than you would like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you really dig into them um, and, and about the human condition, about, you know, salvation and about destruction and death and all of that. So I'm, I've gone into that, um, that dimension, but we're also coupling it with this wonderful poem uh, by Byron called uh, Darkness, which he wrote. So, so it's inter, intermittently, uh, yeah, the poem is, is, is spoken by a narrator and then, uh, and then, the, and then the, uh, while with music underneath, uh, orchestra underneath, and then and then the choir and the soprano kind of come in periodically with with the Latin text. Anyways, but um, the 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 idea of running a requiem is is very much uh, you know in, in keeping with what's going on right now in the world. I mean, there's it's been a bit surprising how how many commissions I've gotten. I mean, how many partners are coming in on this? There's a, yeah. there's a need for this whatever concept right now, whether it's dealing with COVID or the environment or, you know, there's there, we live in this kind of ap- ap- apocalyptic era, um, you know, so it's, um, so it's, 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 uh, it's, yeah, we're feeling it. We're feeling it. <laughs> you know, it's also the fact it's you, you know, because as you've <laughs> increased, you know, move forward into this classical field, pre- audiences love what you do, you know, yeah, and presenters yeah, love what you do. Yeah, and that's yeah, really yeah. important. And I think that there's an interesting aspect. There's one of the commissioners is the Royal Ballet. Yeah. You know, yeah so yeah. it's going to be played oh, in yeah, concert the, 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 halls. The, then it will be at the Royal Opera House. Choreographed yeah, yeah. by. For a long time, I, I have felt, I don't know. I, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's the natural tendency of any artist to feel under valued and you know underappreciated it's just, that's part of the the machine that mm. keeps you composing and keeps you going it's just you need to fill that void you know and it's so it's, i was always a battle with that those that sensibility but um but that being said i i do sit back some moment i'm like wait a minute they're doing my music at the royal <laughs> opera house and you know it's, it's you know it's going to to disney hall you know like wait a minute <laughs> you know this is this is not so bad <laughs> and you, 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 those classic albums, one, 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 two. You're, you're taking them out. You're playing them with an orchestra as well. Is that yeah, yeah. No, we're doing the proms. Yeah, we're doing with them with the with the proms and in in the spring. I'm sorry, in fall, in September at the Royal Albert Hall. Also, not, also not a bad venue. <laughs> and um, and and I'm singing all of those. Yeah, no, I'm working a lot right now. <laughs> if anything, one of my biggest projects is is trying to learn how to work less, <laughs> which I'm finding very difficult. But uh, but but that's uh, that's down the line, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're doing one one, and I mean, I've seen you work with orchestra in Hastings pre-pandemic, right? Yeah. Like, was how different is it to having a does the conductor get in the way? Because you're so used to doing this material yeah, without a yeah. conductor. How how does that jive? It really depends on the conductor. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I I I had a, I had a great time working with Chris. Um, sorry, yeah, Chris. Yeah, Chris Austin. Chris Austin, right, yeah. right. I was about to say Chris Matthews, but uh, it's just, it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Chris Chris Austin and and. Um, and Hastings, he's a fabulous conductor. So, so it really depends on the conductor. And then, the, and you know, it's really interesting, which I, I, which a lot of now that I'm a quote unquote classical musician, um, uh, because I have worked with so many orchestras, um, it really depends on the orchestra. And there's this mm-hmm. strange kind of thing that happens where either the orchestra likes you or they don't. And it's not an interest, and it's not like an individual. It's not a section it's like there's this odd kind of like spirit that's formed by an orchestra where they're either on your side or they're against you and um and I, it's one of the mysteries of, of that whole of that whole um setup and uh and i and you kind of know it immediately and uh and and, and some of the people in the orchestra might adore you mm. but there's just sort of like this strange kind of like like 
equation of, of, of souls or whatever or feeling that, that either is on your side or against you. And so you either have to play with them or you have to play against them. Um, and, um, and it's, and it's, and sometimes when you're playing against them, it can be pretty interesting for the audience. (laughs) I'm in charge. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, hopefully the BBC concert orchestra will be eating out of your hand. And then there's when the orchestra, and then, and when, and then when the orchestra hates the conductor, I mean, that's like, (sighs) and to be in the middle of that whole rigmarole. There was a, there's an orchestra that Thomas Addes conducted for the first time, who shall remain nameless, and he, he, yeah. he had quite a horrible time, and he said it was like conducting a, a room full of London taxi drivers. <laughs> <laughs> All of whom had opinions, none of yeah. which were particularly generous. Yeah. I think I've had the, I think I had, I've had the most dramatic story, though, which I, I don't know if you've ever heard of anybody working with an orchestra with this. I had a trumpet player walk out on me during a concert. What? Yeah, no, I was doing, I was doing, it was during the Trump years and I was, it was in Minneapolis and I was doing going to a town and I guess mm-hmm. he'd heard the song at the rehearsal and right, and right before his solo, because there was a trumpet solo, he walked mm-hmm. out and they had to get the second and right, you know, kind of very dramatically walked out. So I don't know. I haven't heard of that happening. A no, lot me neither. Because <laughs> he was a big, he was a big, big Trump supporter. So, so that was pretty, um, that's pretty dramatic. <laughs> we we traditionally end these chats um, with the question: What are you looking forward to? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to actually to coming to Europe um, and to and to England uh, and doing my show Folkocracy there. I'm playing the Cambridge Folk Festival in July. I'm also I'm turning fifty. On July twenty second, and I'll and that night I'll be singing on the stage of uh, at the National Concert Hall in Dublin. Mm. Um, so that and I think that'll be a pretty amazing evening. <laughs> Some people are coming in, and and I do seem to go to Dublin uh, for these kind of momentous occasions um, just by chance, which makes sense because I'm you know there's a lot of Irish in me, so. So so yeah, I think I think I'm looking forward to that, and then and then and then, and then all of August I spend really working on on the requiem uh, at our house in Montauk, and uh, and I'm I'm looking forward to that, uh, just 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 relaxing with a bit of requiem work. <laughs> yeah, I should do. <laughs> This episode of Composing Myself has been brought to you by Wise Music Group. Thanks for listening.